Welcome to Speaking of Grace, the weekly message podcast from the Whole Life Church in Orlando, Florida. We're a multi-ethnic, multicultural, and multi-generational congregation committed to our mission of loving people into a lifelong friendship with God. We are committed to our vision of being a church without walls, fully engaged in serving the people of our community. Thank you for joining us as we continue Speaking of Grace. A good afternoon, Whole Life Church. It's good to see all of you here today. Um, I want to let you know that this is my first time in Florida, and I learned some things, particularly as I came to Orlando. I went to a Target to get some toothpaste or something, and I went down an aisle, and I was listening to some of the languages that were around, and I thought at first, well, this isn't Spanish, and I realized it's a whole lot of Portuguese being spoken here, right? And so I text my friend Tiago, who lives in Walla Walla. I'm like, hey, Tiago, what's going on? He goes, my friend, you didn't know. You're in little Brazil. And I said, okay, okay. I see. I was half expecting Neymar to come down the aisle and like give me a fist bump. But I am excited to be here. I've also seen all my Haitian people. I saw them as I came in. I've met my Haitian people. I hear there might be some Jerry John John around here. Some, I'm hoping for some legumes, some pate, maybe. We'll see what happens. We can only hope and dream. But it's been wonderful being here. You are such a warm, loving, and inclusive community. And it's been a privilege to be here at the extension of Pastor Ken and the pastoral staff at the Whole Life Church. So wonderful to be here. I've also met some people who are alum of Walla Walla. Anyone who's alum from Walla Walla? Any alum from Walla Walla? There's a couple of you. So it's been good to see all of you and feel so at home, uh, thousands of miles away from our tiny corner of Southeast Washington in Walla Walla. <laughs> Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? God in heaven, thank you for the worship that we have had, for the community we have engaged in, for the study we have had in your word. As your spirit has been among us, we invite it to extend its presence to go deeper and further into our hearts. Lord, I pray that you will comfort those who need your presence, that you will challenge those who need to be disquieted, and you allow us to leave this place more like Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. So in 2009, after hearing the call of God, I decided to go to seminary in Andrews, Berrien Springs, Michigan. And I was living, yeah, we got some shout out for Berrien Springs. That does not happen often. Um, and um, oh, let me go back. And basically, I was traveling from um, Reading, and so I went to Heathrow, and I was going to go to JFK, and then from JFK, I was going to go to um, Berrien Springs. When I was in the line to go through security, I struck up a conversation with someone who was near me, and we were talking, very nice woman, and she says to me, hey, would you be, look- would you be willing to just watch my luggage? And I didn't think much of it. I said, sure, I'll do that for you. So I go through from international to domestic where you transfer all of your things. And I'm holding her luggage, waiting for her to come through. And at some point, I start to think, hold on, what am I doing? I don't know. Some people are like, yes, brother. 
So I start to remember all of the stories and the documentaries I've heard of people who become inadvertent drug mules. And I start to think, dear Lord, what have I got myself into? My palms get sweaty, my throat gets parched, and I'm thinking I have made a big mistake. I start to notice that security seems to be looping around from the airport, coming back in my direction, looking particularly at me. And I became convinced that my desire to go to the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary in Andrews, Michigan was about to cut short, and my poor, sweet mother was going to get a phone call that your son has just been detained and is now in jail because he was a drug mule. And I thought to myself, I am in the wrong place at the wrong time, and I don't know how I got here. And all of us this afternoon, all of us have been in places where we have been in the wrong place at the wrong time. We found ourselves in a relationship that we knew should have ended three months ago, and we're still in that relationship, and we know we're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Some of us have found ourselves in the wrong role at the wrong time. We didn't look at the job description carefully. Now we're three months into this, we have more work, less support, and less freedom than we had wished. And we thought, oh, we'll just do it for six months. The title is good, then we can find something else. But we realize we're in the wrong place at the wrong time, and we cannot get out of it. We've all been there before. You've walked past a, a puddle just as a Ford F-150 <laughs> drive past you. And you say, Lord, I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. But here's the thing. Sometimes being in the wrong place at the wrong time can work out to our advantage. Maybe you take a wrong turn and all of a sudden you find yourself in a place in Orlando you've never been. You've lived here for 20 years, but somehow you didn't know about this neighborhood. And then you run into a place that serves the best feijoado for offer you've ever had in your life. And you say, thank you, Lord, that I was in the wrong place at the wrong time because my soul has been blessed. Today we find someone in the Gospel of Matthew who is in the wrong place at the wrong time. And Simeon of Cyrene is finding the difficulty and the blessing of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, beginning in verse 32 of Matthew 27. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Simon by name, and they compelled him to bear his cross. If you're coming here today for the first time, maybe you've never been to church, maybe you go to church every now and again, maybe you're here just to be in town and your parents have dragged you to church, you may be wondering, who is this person, Simon of Cyrene? I know a little bit about church. I grew up maybe going to church, maybe I went to uh, Sunday school, but I don't remember reading about this person. Well, let me tell you about this person because we can imagine that Simon who comes into this narrative in the book of Matthew with essentially one line and before the stage lights hit his skin, he exits and we don't hear from him again. But we can imagine that Simon is come into Jerusalem and he's swept along in a river of pilgrims who are coming to the gates of Jerusalem at the Passover. 
Simon would have looked around and like this congregation, he would have seen an intergenerational, multicultural group of people coming to worship. He'd have seen people from Gaul in Italy. He'd have seen people from Cappadocia, from India, maybe scholars tell us even as far east as China coming to the Passover in Jerusalem. The crowd was a babble of languages and there's a torrent of bodies who hit a bottleneck because they're all trying to go through the same gate to get into the city of Jerusalem. And I can imagine Simon craning his neck, looking at the limestone blocks, the huge beams of timber as he goes in, miles since his journey began back home in Cyrene. Where is Cyrene? In North Africa, where he would have started his pilgrimage. And now he's about to enter the holy city of Jerusalem, the most holy place for, um, for Jewish people on earth. And then as he's walking, imagine with me, because this is Matthew 27, the end of Jesus' life, that all of a sudden he sees a Roman guard coming and the and the crowd parts like the Red Sea. And then Simon steps back and he sees there are three people who are on their way to be crucified and to be put to death. And then one of the men stumbles forward, falls on his knees. He has no energy and no strength left. And his visibly tattered clothes show red dripping down his back because he has been whipped. His hair is matted, his face is bruised and he has a crossbar laying on his back. And suddenly, suddenly, Simon, who is just a bystander, suddenly feels angry, rough hands on him and the glint of a sword pointed at him. And then the instructions are said, hey, Simon, pick this up, or you there, pick this up. And now we find Simon in the wrong place at the wrong time having to carry a crossbeam for a criminal that he does not know. But before we go there, I've always wondered, maybe you've wondered when you've read this text, why Simon of Cyrene? Why go through the bother of telling us who he was? And also, why was it not a local from Jerusalem? Maybe it's just bad luck. Maybe it's just bad luck that the person who is taken roughly to help the criminal just happens to be the foreigner from Africa. Maybe it's just a coincidence. Maybe it's a coincidence that he's compelled to the point of death and he is given this task. Luke tells us that they grab him violently and the Greek is epilambastai and he conjures up this image of soldiers grabbing Simon, pushing him and seizing him. And so we find his body grabbed with excessive force, subjugated for this brutal act of servitude in behalf of the state, Simon the African. It's interesting. Like many Simons generations later, on the coast of West Africa from Ghana, you heard from Pastor Ken, I grew up in Ghana. I moved when I was seven to England. My late father was going to Newbold College to do theology. That's how we ended up in England. We stayed there. The accent stuck, right? <laughs> But we moved from Ghana in West Africa. That's where we moved from. Moved from Ghana in West Africa. And I remember when I was 18 going back and seeing the two places in Ghana, the two oldest sub-Saharan castles in Africa are both in Ghana, Elmina and Cape Coast. And I walked through the door of no return 
where they would load violently into ships people who would never see their homeland again and bring them across the Americas in the transatlantic slave trade. And I knew they knew what it meant to be handled in the service of an unjust cause. They knew the terror of having your first introduction, perhaps to Jesus, be under coercion and violence. And when I visited Elmina and Cape Coast, the tour guide took us to some dungeons, and the dungeons were placed in a particular place because the dungeon was here and the chapel was above the dungeon. And so the soldiers would go and they would worship Jesus Christ, and then they would go down into the dungeon and do unspeakable things to the people who were there. I remember watching um, the tour guide point to some markings on the wall, and I didn't know what it was. And he said, hey, what do you think the markings are? And we're looking at the markings on the wall, and I kid you not, it was about this high. People are given different guesses, and he goes, no, this was the human waste that was found in the dungeon when they extracted it because they never cleaned the place. So it wasn't just an interesting architectural feature. It was telling us what would happen down there. Mark chapter 15, verse 22 tells us that Simon from Cyrene in North Africa actually had two sons, Rufus and also Alexander. Now, we don't read about his sons, so we're not sure if they are in the ordeal, but as I read the text, a part of me as a parent, I have one child, you have children as well, made me uh, wonder if Simon just protected Alexander and Rufus when he saw the Roman soldiers coming so they didn't have to go through what he was going through. I wonder if from childhood he had taught his sons how to react when enforcers of the law lay angry hands on you. I wondered maybe he spent Sundays role-playing over the rules of survival if you're stopped by a Roman soldier while riding your donkey. Maybe he said to Alexander and Rufus, hey, boys, listen up. This is important. Remember to be polite and respectful if you're stopped by a Roman soldier while riding your donkey. Keep your mouth closed. Don't talk too much. Remember your goal is to get home safely. If you feel like your rights have been violated and you want to file a formal complaint with your local Roman jurisdiction, make notes as you're having the conversation. Keep your hands in plain sight and make sure the Romans can always see where they are. Avoid physical contact with the law enforcement. No sudden movements. Keep your hands out of your pockets. Never run, even if you're afraid for your life. Stay calm and remain under control. Are you listening, Rufus? Did you hear what I just said, Alexander? Watch your words, your body language, and your emotions. And so Alexander and Rufus escape further mention, maybe because their dad, Simon the Cyrenian from North Africa, had trained them well. And although there's no mention again of Simon beyond the Gospels, there's enough breadcrumbs that we can trace through the New Testament to, to posit a likely future. What happened to Simon the Cyrenian after his one-word act on stage and then he exits? What happens to him? Is he in the Bible? And we find in Acts chapter 2 verse 10, there is a mention of people who also come from North Africa, Cyrene, who are present when 
the day of Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit is poured on all people. There are Cyrenians there. In Acts chapter 7, we also have a record of believers who are in the church of Antioch. And these believers coming around the uh, conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord, we are told of one person who is recorded as Simon the Black. Acts chapter 7, Simon the Black. Who is this dude? And these people are cast as having a didactic and prophetic role in the formation of the early Christian church. Legend has it that Simon was the progenitor of Christianity in North Africa. In fact, centuries later, the Cyrenian movement, named after Simon the Cyrenian, considers his experience, and they chose as their motto, we are the burden sharers. We share the burden. And it's always been interesting to me, when I came across Simon the Cyrenian, the North African, I said to myself, I wish there are some of my friends who are no longer in church and some who decided they wouldn't want to be in church because they had a, maybe a sort of pan-Africanism and they wanted to go back to what they thought was truly theirs. They didn't want a, a European religion. I would have said to them, my friends, you didn't even know. Christianity was in Africa first. This is not a European religion. In no shape or form, you have Simon the Cyrenian, the African. And here he was, Simon, walking up the hill of Golgotha, bearing a cross that was not his. Early church fathers Tertullian, Cyrene, and Augustine also came from Africa. The contemporary history of the church, as you probably know, as you probably know, your smart people is poxmarked with faulty theology that has ruthlessly weaponized on the African context. From about 1885 to the end of the Second World War, most of Africa was under the yoke of colonialism, this practice of controlling, exploiting, and ruling independent nations for their resources. And colonialism extended from battlegrounds to parliament and to laws. In fact, if you read about colonial historiography, this is this idea of historical methods. If you read about it, you will see that Africa is stated as having no history. And therefore, Africans are seen as a historically rootless people. We have no roots. We have no history. This is what has happened in the past. And the image of Africa as a dark continent was propagated. African history was, for the most part, seen as the history of Europeans in Africa because once they came to Africa, then apparently we began to exist. That's when we existed, because that's when they found us. And it was argued that Africa had no history because history begins with writing and thus with the arrival of Europeans. And colonialism in Africa was justified as it was placed in Africa because it was seen as the path of history and a civilizing mission by European traders, missionaries, and administrators. Today, many people have a one-story narrative about the continent of Africa with its 54 countries. Yes, Nigerian author Chimamanda Ngozi Adechi in her 2009 talk, uh, TED Talk, talks about what happens when all of us, in our complexity as human beings, in the complexity of everything we bring, have our situations reduced to a single narrative, a single narrative. And all of you know what it feels like. You come from another country. 
You come to America, someone will meet you and they'll be like, hey, hey, don't all Brazilians. And you look at them like, what are you talking about? No, there is no, there's nothing all Brazilians do. Maybe apart from defend Neymar when he dives, but that's another story. I'm just not, we're not going to talk about it. Or say Ronaldo is better than Messi, but that's a conversation outside of Sabbath hours. I don't want there to be a riot in your church, okay? I don't want it to be a riot. Or someone says, hey, don't all people from DR, don't all Haitians, don't know. Anyone starting any sentence with don't all, the answer is going to be no, you're wrong. And so Chimamanda Adechingozi says that we are too complex as humans, as Africans, to have a single narrative about us or to be patronized as being incapable or mentally diminished or morally infantile people who can only survive on the good graces and charity that comes from the West. And so there is a level of ignorance around Africa that is outstanding. Even when I first moved to England in the 90s, I remember my parents coming home heated one day. And my mom, I was like, what's going on, mom? She said, oh, you know, and she unfortunately categorized another group of people, but that's neither here nor there. And then she, she said, why do they think that just because I'm from Ghana or from Africa, they're asking me if my husband has two wives, right? Or people asking, have you ever petted a lion? No, we have not. <laughs> That's not a thing, friends. It's not a thing, okay? We do not live in Lion King. This is not how it works. I don't know who Mufasa is. Stop, right? And so it's a complex, complex story. And when you have a continent with 54 countries spoken of as a country, it becomes difficult because our story is complex and it's heterogeneous, not homogeneous. As a Ghanaian, I recall hearing about the brilliance of Kwame Nkrumah, the first prime minister and president of Ghana, an influential advocate of pan-Africanism, who invited Martin Luther King to come to Ghana to be present when they transitioned from being under the auspices of the British government and being Gold Coast. By the way, why do you think they were called Gold Coast? to becoming Ghana, meaning warrior king, a title accorded to the kings of the medieval Ghanaian empire in West Africa. <clears throat> Interestingly for me, the soil of history in Ghana, and I'm telling you this for a reason, by the way, I'm telling you this because we're looking at Simon, the North African, and we are celebrating black history Sabbath, and it's important for you to recognize and for me to let you know that Christ has always been present amongst all people, including the continent of Africa and now specifically the country of Ghana. The soil of Ghana is rich with cultural and biblical gems. In fact, within the day names of the week of the Akan language, one of many languages and dialects in Ghana, is the narrative of creation. Look at this. So this is, this is just regular stuff in Ghana. What is the day name for Sunday? Kwesiada, what does it mean? It means creator of life, descended day. Well, what's Monday? It's Kwejo, it means Lord of life, firmament day. What's Tuesday? Benda, Lord of life's land day. What's Wednesday? Wukwada, the day of the heavenly hosts. What is Thursday? Yawada, Lord of Life, Day of Reproduction. Look at Friday. Fiada, Lord of Life's Home Day. And I wonder what in a can Saturday might be. 
Look at this. Memenda, I am that I am's day of satisfaction. And so we think about the irony that it was with heavy coercion, penalty, and punishment that missionaries came to Ghana to tell them about God. I'll take some. There's some real irony in that, friends. And yet, and yet, let me, let me do this as a coda to this section. It is important to recognize that there was a legacy of Protestants who came to Ghana, Adventists who came in the late 1890s, who helped and without whom I would not be standing here as an Adventist. There is a legacy, a good legacy. And yet, many cruel, unspeakable acts of injustice happened under the banner of Jesus in Africa. And I believe that Jesus, when he looked at Simon the Cyrenian carrying his burden, Matthew chapter 27, would have felt his pain. And he would have felt the pain of all of those on the African continent who found themselves bearing burdens not of their own choosing. And I know that this afternoon there are people who have come to church. You don't know who I am. I've never met you. We've never met each other. You may not even be a person of color. And you are saying, you know what, Andres, I get it. I have felt that I've been carrying in my life a burden not of my own choosing. I am a grandmother and I am the primary caretaker for my grandkids because my kids' life are a hot mess. I am carrying a burden I didn't choose and it's hard, right? I have someone in my life who makes my life miserable. They live perpetually on my last nerve. They have an address and P.O. box on my last nerve. <laughs> I am carrying a burden I did not choose. And some of us carry burdens that we can hide, and some of us carry burdens that we live in this skin. But we all carry burdens. And we see Simon here carrying this burden, and it's interesting to me because it seems to me that Simon the Cyrenian was not the one who was supposed to help Jesus on Golgotha. I think that everybody would have expected Jesus' disciples to be loyal to him, like the disciples of Judas the Hammer, who led a revolt against Antiochus. They would have expected the Messiah's right-hand men to have stayed with him till the very end. In fact, let me give you some evidence. Matthew 26, verse 35 Lord, even if I have to die, I will never deny you. Friends, where was Peter? Because it seems to me that the wrong Simon was carrying the cross being for Jesus. Where was Andrew? Where was James? Where was Philip? Where was Bartholomew or Thomas or Matthew, the tax collector? James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot. Where were they when Jesus needed them? And, and it tells me so much because sometimes you'll find yourself in a situation you feel unqualified for. You don't have a theology degree. 
You didn't grow up in the church. You just got baptized three months ago and Jesus puts you straight in the middle of a situation where you think someone else should be doing this, Lord. You got the wrong guy. Look at my social security number. You got the wrong guy. Please. And God is like, no, it's good. You're here. You're in line at Chipotle. This person's asked you why you believe in God. Give them an answer. You're here at work. This person who's on the same floor as you has just had someone die and now they need someone to minister to them. You might not be a chaplain, but chaplain them right now. And so we find the wrong Simon coming to help Jesus. Having failed Jesus in the garden, it seems to me that the disciples had been drowned by shame, swallowed up by fear, and kept far from Christ who needed them. But there was a man, Simon the Cyrenian, and he carried the crossbeam for Christ. And I'm here to tell you today that if you are carrying a cross that you do not feel is yours, and you might feel like your involvement is punishment, just know that sometimes your chosenness is a prize. You have come here, you've been, you're dragging, you're dragging a hundred pound weight behind you. You're the one trying to keep the marriage together. Your spouse is on the verge of leaving. You're the one trying to be there for your kids and no one else seems to be there for them. You're the one turning up when everyone else is given up and it feels like, God, you have chosen me to do something I don't have the ability to do. This feels like a punishment, but friends, it is chosenness and it's a prize and not a punishment because God will never give us more than we can bear. So if you've come in today feeling that way, know that your task is not Sisyphean. You know, Sisyphus, he pushes the rock up to the top of the mountain every day, but he never quite gets it up. Then it rolls back and he has to do it again. And sometimes we feel like our life is like that. But know that it is not without hope. We have to live in a world that is complex and there is places where we can have justifiable fear, but we have hope. Why do we have hope? Because our hope does not come from loans from the World Bank, from pronouncements at the White House, from the Peace Corps at the UN, from investment from abroad, from Western acceptance of who you are or your culture or your rhythm or your history. But our hope, whole life church, is in Jesus Christ. The Christ who then took the beam from Simon the Cyrenian and who hung suspended between heaven and earth for you and for me. The one who bore the sin of Simon and Alexander and Rufus and every African who confessed the name of Jesus, who died to rescue every European and South American and American and Australian. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And that same Jesus gives us the ability to say, though our outward man perisheth, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. And don't leave this place thinking this was a sermon. Yes, it's black history. Yes, it's an African person preaching this. Yes, we spoke about Simon the Cyrenian from North Africa. But don't think that our hope is in lionizing and raising up Simon, the African, but it's in Jesus. And it was Jesus who took that crossbeam and the upright and the nails and the sword to the side and the spit on his face and the vitriol and the mocking of Roman soldiers and the violence and the injustice for all of us. 
And Simon was not crushed because Jesus took the crushing of the cross. And this is the cosmic truth that all of us must hold on to whatever our cross, even when we feel like we're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And what that means today, friends, is that as we have come and gathered as a community, as we have come proclaiming that the blood of Jesus does not lose its power, even in 2024 in Orlando, Florida, in an election year that's about to come. We can come and without present anger or bitterness, we can live together as brothers and sisters in Christ, black and white, because all of us have been rescued and redeemed in Christ. The Christ who is always in the right place at the right time, even when we are often in the wrong place and in the wrong times of our lives. Amen. Hi, this is Randy McGray, podcast producer and host here at Whole Life Church. Loving people into a lifelong friendship with God is our mission at the Whole Life Church and our podcasts are designed to help facilitate conversations that help us grow together in that pursuit. Now that you've heard the message for this week, don't forget to check out the Whole Life Takeaways for this message. Swipe up in today's show notes and join the conversation. Speaking of conversations, each Wednesday morning we take a closer look at the week's message. That's right, the one you just listened to. We discuss practical ways to apply spiritual lessons and ask honest questions about the issues we face as Christians all focused through the lens of grace. Your voice is a welcomed addition to that conversation. We encourage your thoughts and your questions by sending a voicemail or text to 407-965-1607 or send an email to podcast at wholelife.church. You can find everything podcast-related on our website, wholelife.church podcast. And plan on spending every Tuesday evening and Wednesday morning with us as we bring you the Whole Life Church inspiration you love straight into your headphones. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.